This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, the Digital Education Fellow at Great Ormond Street and your host for today's podcast. I'm joined again on the show today by Dr. Maria Gogu, a Senior Clinical Fellow in Paediatric Neurology at GOSH, who's going to be talking to me about the approach to the sleepy child, covering a definition of sleepiness, common presentations, and an approach to history-taking, investigation, and ongoing management. Hello, Maria. Thank you for joining me again on the podcast today. Hello. Thank you, Emma. Can I start by asking, what would you like people to get out of the podcast today? First of all, I would like people to be able to recognize symptoms of sleepiness among children and adolescents, to be able to take a structured sleep history and identify different causes of sleepiness, and also to understand how important sleep is for brain health and be able to advocate for that. Fantastic. Yeah, they sound like really good, important outcomes for today. So starting with a question that might seem a little bit stupid, what is sleepiness? I mean, I think most people listening would know what we mean by the term sleepiness, but is there a more formal definition? So someone is sleepy when they have the tendency to fall asleep, although they're awake. And when this tendency happens in situations and at times when this person is expected to be alert and awake, like school, then we describe that as excessive data sleeping. And actually, it's not so uncommon. So studies have shown that among children before puberty, the prevalence of excessive data sleeping can be up to 20%. And for adolescents, the rate of sleeping can be higher, even up to 50%. So it's a quite frequent symptom. Okay, yes, that does sound like it's quite common then. And what's the significance of sleepiness? We need to have in our mind that sleepiness reflects a state of sleep deprivation and it is associated with all those negative impacts that occur due to bad sleep. Sleep is a biological function that is essential for neurodevelopment. It contributes to neural plasticity and it's crucial for consolidation of memory and for learning. It's not worthy that sleep problems are by far more frequent among children with neurodevelopmental difficulties. And also, it has been shown that poor sleep, even from neonatal age, can have uh, bad developmental outcomes, at least in the short term. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think probably most people listening to this podcast would have experienced sleepiness and so know the effects it might have in that way because you know you know if you've not had enough sleep the night before then you're not going to be as mentally alert as you would be if you'd had a good night's sleep exactly what is considered normal in terms of sleep because it seems to vary hugely from baby to baby and child to child and even between adults so how do we know what normal is 
Exactly. Sleep is a function which undergoes many changes throughout childhood. And uh, what is considered as normal for a baby is abnormal for an adolescent and the opposite. So the most important change which takes place is the sleep duration, which tends to decrease with age. For example, a baby, an infant around six months old, let's say, is expected to sleep about 14 or 15 hours over a 24-hour period. A school-aged child is expected to sleep about 10 hours, and an adolescent usually sleeps about 8 hours per day. Also, I'm sure that most people know that sleep is not one separate state, but includes different distinct states. And the major division is between non-REM and REM sleep, and uh, non-REM sleep is further divided into stages 1, 2, and 3, which uh, reflect an increasing threshold for arousal. So stage 1 is light sleep, and uh, stage 3 is a deep sleep, which is characterized by the presence of uh, slow wave activity in the electroencephalogram. And this is important because those aspects of sleep architecture also change with age. For example, the proportion of REM sleep within the first two years of life can decrease from 50% to about 25% and then stay stable for the rest of their lives. And REM sleep is really useful for the establishment of emotional memory and procedural memory, which is um, a memory necessary for developing a skill. On the other hand, the slow wave activity is maximal during the early developmental stages, and the peak is encountered at the age of three years, roughly. So a child three years old can spend up to one-third of the total sleep time having slow wave activity. However, after five years of age, the proportion of slow wave activity gradually reduces by about 5% every year. Slow wave activity is very important for the establishment of declaration memory, so the memory which is important for remembering and recalling information. And of course, we need to have in our mind that as a child grows up, there is a number of external factors like social life, school activities, use of technology, which can also interfere with and modify sleep. So we need to have in our mind the biological age and the developmental stage of a child when we assess them for sleep problems. Right. Okay. So I guess it sounds from what you're saying, general rules are that as you get older, you need less sleep, but there's still considerable variability between individuals. Exactly. Exactly. So what are the various ways in which a child might present with sleepiness? So if they're not getting enough sleep, obviously, as you said earlier, sleepiness is when you're kind of tired and falling asleep during the day when you should be awake. How else might a child present when they're suffering with sleepiness? Well, the symptoms can be varied. You might have symptoms which are closely and directly related to sleep. For example, a sleepy child is expected to sleep longer than usual. A child who is sleepy can fall asleep during daytime under circumstances when they are expected to be awake, like at school, for example. They tend to take daytime naps. And they can also have significant difficulty with waking up in the morning. However, there are also symptoms suggestive of sleepiness, which are not so obviously related to sleep. 
and we need to have them in our mind. In order to understand why those symptoms appear, we need to remember again that sleepiness reflects a situation of lack of sleep. So what can lack of sleep cause? It can cause hyperactivity. It can cause inattention during the day. A child with sleepiness can be more irritable. They can be more prone to have accidents during daytime. They may experience school and learning difficulties. And as the child grows up, sleepiness can also manifest with some symptoms which are suggestive of what we call frontal lobe dysfunction. So sleepiness can manifest as poor use of language. It can manifest with memory difficulties. Children may exhibit a difficulty with planning things throughout the day, difficulty with the multitasking or having an inflexible way of thinking. And then adolescents who have sleepiness can also exhibit symptoms of lack of motivation or being bored during the day. And of course, sleepiness is also associated with mental health problems. So yeah, symptoms can really vary. Yeah, so huge variability and possibly not just the kind of ones that you would expect, like falling asleep more mm-hmm. often, but also just a big impact on mood and cognitive function in general, it sounds like. Yeah, that's got it. So what are the different conditions that could cause this presentation and do you have any way of categorizing them? Well, the differential diagnosis can be really broad and there are really many different causes to consider. I would say that first of all, it is important to differentiate between acute and chronic sleepiness. And in most cases, when we talk about a sleepy child, we imagine a child with a chronic problem and a long-term and ongoing problem. However, there are a number of conditions which are associated with the appearance of acute sleepiness, even in a previously totally fit and healthy child. What I mean is that sleep It's a function which is altered in uh, almost all systemic infections. And this can represent some kind of sickness behavior as a response to an inflammation in our body. From those infections, of course, the central nervous system infections like meningitis or encephalitis can very specifically target the sleep-wake cycle and lead to the appearance of sleepiness. Of course, in that case, we will anticipate additional symptoms like fever, headache, neck stiffness, which are particularly obvious in an older child. In the younger age, in toddlers and infants, we may have more vague symptoms like that fever, irritability, and the altered mental status. We also need to consider immune-mediated conditions like the acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, the ADAM syndrome. Sleepiness is one of the earliest and most prominent symptoms. And in that case, we would also anticipate altered mental status, confusion, more obvious neurological findings like ataxia or signs of upper motor neuron injury. And of course, in those cases, neuroimaging and the lumbar puncture are needed to establish the diagnosis. Acute sleepiness can also appear after traumatic head injury, and this is a sign which lowers the threshold to perform neuroimaging in those children. I have to say, however, that in the case of a head trauma, sleepiness can also be a chronic consequence 
and those children can struggle with this symptom even a few months after their trauma. Acute sleepiness can also be associated with tumors of the brain. In that case, the history might be a bit longer than in the previous cases I mentioned. So we can expect a history of a few weeks, for example, or even more. And we need to be vigilant and seek for other red flag symptoms like uh, headaches or vision changes, including diplopia or obscurations, or even symptoms like seizures or focal neurological deficit. Strokes can also happen in childhood, although they are not so common as in older ages. And in younger ages, symptoms of a stroke can be really vague sometimes. Sleepiness can be one of them. So this is something we need to have in the background of our mind, although I know that it is something not so common. In older children and adolescents, we need to exclude any use of substances which could lead to the appearance of acute sleepiness. And for this purpose, toxicological screening tests are needed. And sometimes the onset of sleepiness may be one of the earliest signs of an emerging mental health problem, again, in older children. In all those cases that I described, in the majority of them, apart from sleepiness, we also have the coexistence of altered consciousness. So this combination, sleepiness, alongside altered mental status, should raise the suspicion for an underlying neurological cause for the appearance of sleepiness. And of course, although in those cases we usually have a previously healthy child, we need to have in mind that there are children with underlying chronic disorders who can present acutely with sleepiness. And this can make clinical sense regarding how well their underlying condition is controlled. For example, a child with renal impairment, with renal cellule, the appearance of acute sleepiness can be a sign of increased levels of urea in their blood. Or there are children with an underlying developmental epileptic encephalopathy, like Lennox-Gastor or Dravet syndrome. In those children, if they present acutely with new sleepiness, this could be even a sign of a non-convulsive status epilepticus. So it's important to consider all those different causes of acute sleepiness. So that's acute sleepiness. What are the causes of chronic sleepiness? I would say up to 50% of them can be related to sleep disorders, to sleep problems. And the other 50% can be due to conditions different from sleep. And all those causes of sleepiness, they cause sleepiness by three different ways. They can either lead to inhabitant sleep, they can lead to fragmentation of sleep, or they can increase the need of sleep of a person. In the first category, we will mainly think about sleep disorders like insomnia or circadian rhythm sleep disorders. In the second category of fragmented sleep, we need again to have the normalized from primary sleep disorders, and I would like to highlight the sleep breathing disorder here. And they mean obstructive sleep apnea. The reason for causing sleepiness is because children who have obstructive sleep apnea during sleep, they can experience arousal, sometimes even a very subtle arousal, which, however, are enough 
to have a bad impact on the architecture of sleep and reduce the total sleep time as well. Other sleep problems are parasomnia and insomnia. Sometimes can also, apart from reducing the total sleep time, it can also lead to a fragmenting sleep. However, there are other medical conditions as well, which can have a similar effect. I would like to highlight epilepsy. So children who have seizures, and especially seizures during sleep, this can again lead to a number of arousal and awakening during sleep and impact the sleep duration and architecture. Similarly, children with movement disorders or with respiratory problems like asthma, with severe allergic conditions or with gastroesophageal reflux, they can have very fragmented nighttime sleep. There are also medications which can cause sleep problems and subsequently lead to daytime sleepiness. And we need to remember that there are also environmental factors like sleeping in a noisy environment or having devices and mobile in the sleep room which can disrupt sleep potentially. And there are also some more rare conditions which can increase the need of a person to sleep. Yeah, so can you tell me about any of those rare causes? I mainly refer to a condition called narcolepsy. Perhaps some people will have heard about that. It's a really rare cause. In the United Kingdom, it's estimated that about one in 2,000 people may have this condition. Although it might actually be a bit underreported, in fact. What happens in narcolepsy is that people affected lack a neurotransmitter an excitatory neurotransmitter called hypocretin or orexin. This neurotransmitter promotes wakefulness in normal people. However, people who have experienced a loss of a group of hypothalamic neurons lack this neurotransmitter. And this can lead to excessive sleepiness and an irrepressible, I would say, mean fall asleep during daytime. So those people have inclusion of sleep throughout the day, which can very severely impact almost all their daytime activities. And they can also exhibit some other symptoms like cataplexy or very disrupted nighttime sleep. They may have sleep paralysis or very frightening and scary hypnagogic hallucinations. So we need to have it in our mind because although it's not very common, a person with this condition needs to be referred to the special sleep clinic. Regarding pediatric narcolepsy, I would say that it mainly appears at the beginning of adolescence, around 14 or 15 years. But there are also recent studies which show that it can be frequent even at younger ages, from the age of 10 years and onwards. So if the pediatrician has a suspicion about this condition, it's worth referring the child to a special clinic for that. Right, okay, so definitely an important one to know about, but it is rare and so there are more common conditions to also exactly, yeah, as well. Yeah. I guess with that in mind, how would you approach a child presenting with sleepiness in terms of your clinical history and examination? I would say that, that the clinical history is the cornerstone for diagnosis of a sleep disorder. Sometimes it's difficult for a child so to express, to verbalize the internal state of sleepiness. So it's something that we may actively seek when we take our medical history. 
what I mean is sometimes that child might present without a symptom, but in fact, the real chief complaint might be sleepiness. So it is something that we might need to bring out ourselves during medical history taking. It's important to know how long those symptoms have been present for, because this will make a difference in our differential diagnosis. It's important to get a schedule of the child's sleep. And when I say schedule, I mean the bedtime, the wake-up time, both on school days and on holidays. It's important to ask about nighttime awakening, if they are present and how frequent they may be. It's important to ask about the need to take daytime nap and this disrupting recently and how much. We need to look for symptoms that suggest people difficulty with waking up in the morning or to actively answer if there are occasions on which a child can fall asleep in strange places or at strange times. It's helpful to find out about the place a child sleeps. And I mean to ask whether a child sleeps in a separate room, if they share a room with their siblings, or if they sleep in the same room with their parents. This is important because, you know, a person cannot give information about their own sleep, so we need to rely on what other people who live in the same house witness about the child's sleep. So it might be tricky sometimes if the child sleeps in a separate room. It is important to ask about the use of technology and the presence of devices like a computer, a laptop, or mobile phones in the same room where a child sleeps. And also, it's important to gain uh, a good general medical history, including other comorbidities, other medical problems that a child can have. It's also important to ask about medication, and especially if there has been a recent change in them. And in the case of adolescents, it's important to ask about the consumption of coffee, of some energy drink, of alcohol, or other substances. And it might be useful to have a private discussion with them without their parents present. And because I mentioned earlier that sleep breathing disorder can be a cause of sleepiness frequently, it's important to ask if the child knows during sleep. Sometimes it's difficult for parents to be aware of that. So we can use additional questions like, does the child sleep with the mouth open? Or have you ever heard a pause in breathing during sleep? Or has a child ever woken up with headache or with a dry mouth? And indirectly draw the information we need. So yeah, I mean, a thorough medical history is the gold standard of approaching a child with a sleeping problem. And the physical examination is actually guided by what we will have learned from the medical history. It's particularly significant, again, in the case of suspecting the sleep breathing problem, because if we examine a child and we see hypertrophic tonsils, or if we see an adenoid face, or a child who is overweight, and also a child with craniofacial abnormality, like micrognathia, for example, all those situations are risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea. So if we identify them on physical examination, this can be an indirect information that an underlying sleep breathing problem can justify symptoms of sleep this type. 
Okay, so the key is taking a really good detailed history and then using that to tailor your examination based on the likely causes at that stage. Yes, exactly. What investigations might be required to help you form a diagnosis? Although in many cases, diagnosis can be made from a good health history, as we have highlighted, there are two investigations which are useful. And the first of them is polysomnography. So polysomnography is a test during which a child sleeps in a special sleep unit. And during sleep, a number of body functions are recorded with the use of electrodes. So what we record is temperature, airflow, thorax and abdomen movement, oxygen saturation, electroencephalogram, heart rate, and eye movement. Polysomnography is associated with the video recording as well, and it's very useful in identifying primary sleep problems, especially for the diagnosis of sleep breathing disorder. I would say it's a gold standard and can also provide us with the objective information with data about some sleep parameters like total sleep time or number of awakening. So actually it can help us quantify the sleep function size. Another useful test is called the multiple sleep latency test, and it's particularly useful for diagnosis of narcolepsy. So what happens during that test is that we invite a child to come into a special unit during daytime after the child has had a night's sleep, and we offer the child some opportunities to nap during daytime just for short periods of 20 minutes. This opportunity is offered every two hours about four or five times. So what we evaluate is whether the child will fall asleep, how quickly they will fall asleep, and how the sleep will start. And when I say how the sleep will start, I mean that patients who have narcolepsy, they tend to experience REM sleep very early, very early after sleep onset, which is not the case in normal uh, subjects. So if we invite a child for a multiple sleep latency test, and we see that he has at least uh, two occasions of sleep onset with REM sleep, this is a very highly suggestive sign of narcolepsy. Right, okay, that makes sense. So there are specific investigations that might be helpful in the diagnosis, but don't negate the need to take a really good detailed sleep history. Of course, yeah. Yes, yes. Moving on now to think a little bit about management. How do we manage sleepiness? I mean, obviously it depends a little bit on, you know, what you think is the cause. But in general, what are the overall measures we should be thinking about to improve sleep? Yes, I think your point was very reasonable that once we have found the cause of sleepiness, it's reasonable to address this cause. First of all, however, there are some measures which can be taken and improve in general the sleep quality. And what I mean with those measures is to develop among the families of good sleep hygiene. So it's important for times to have a relaxing bedtime routine. It's important to have bed times which are as stable as possible. It's of paramount importance to sleep in a suitable environment. I mean a quiet, dark, and cool room. We might need to discourage the use of technology and social media devices around bedtime. 
it is also helpful to recommend that a child or an adolescent might not have heavy physical exercise or a large meal or a, a drink like a coffee at least one or two hours close to their normal bedtime. And at the same time, it's important to look for comorbidities which can cause sleep problems and treat them. For example, in the case of sleep breathing disorders, this can be done by treating the bones. So, I mean, a child can have removal of large and tonsil, and this can treat the problem. A child who has poor control of epilepsy and this impacts their sleep, in that case, the problem can be solved by optimizing seizure control. A child who experiences sleepiness as a result of the medication, this can be addressed by adjustment of medication doses. Similarly, a child who has disrupted sleep subsequent to a bad, a bad exam, for instance, optimizing for the treatment for the underlying condition can subsequently treat sleepiness as well. So the combination of promoting sleep hygiene measures and also looking for comorbidities and secondary causes and treating them is the solution. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Are there any specific treatments for some of the conditions that you've mentioned that are important to know about? Yes, for narcolepsy, again, even for this situation, which is presumed to be either a genetic or an autoimmune condition, good sleep hygiene measures are recommended. So look for comorbidities in those patients which can affect their sleep. Adopting all the aforementioned measures of good sleep hygiene. And also patients with narcolepsy are usually encouraged to take scheduled and repeated naps throughout the day. So they are usually advised to take one nap during lunchtime and one nap later during afternoon. And in general, naps every four hours, which can help with the symptom of excessive daytime sleepiness. There are medications particularly effective for excessive daytime sleepiness, like methylphenidate or modafinil, and other medications which can also help with symptoms of cataplexy, those patients exhibit. However, those medications are prescribed by special sleep doctors, and this is done only after referral in a special clinic. So, I mean, the message is that even for this rare condition, there are available medications, available therapeutic options. Right, okay. Is there a role for melatonin in sleep disorders? Yes, melatonin can be useful in cases of children who have increased sleep latency time. I mean, children who have difficulty with falling asleep. Melatonin can be used at around the normal bedtime of the child and actually shorten the time the child needs to fall asleep. So if we presume from medical history that the cause of sleepiness is difficulty with falling asleep, for instance, insomnia, then we can try melatonin as a therapeutic measure. Okay, thank you. That's been a really excellent overview of how to approach a sleepy child. So thank you for that. Just finishing with our standard quick fire questions now. Are there any classic exam questions that tend to pop up about this subject a lot? Yes, those questions fall within the sections for, for history taking. So trainees can be asked questions about approaching a child with sleepiness from history taking point of view. And also questions about differential diagnosis. 
and approaching a child with a sleeping problem. Right. So really important to make sure that you know the components of a, a good sleep history, as you mentioned earlier. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend for listeners who might want to find out more? There are some websites which have the sleep resources useful for healthcare professionals. And I can mention the website of International Pediatric Sleep Association, the website of the European Association of Sleep Medicine, and the website of the European Sleep Research Society. And there is also a book called Principles and Practice of Pediatric Sleep Medicine, which also would be a very good resource for someone who wants to do some more photo reading. Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you. Finally, what are your three takeaway learning points for people listening to today's podcast? First message, I would say that we need to be open-minded when we assess a child with symptoms of dizziness, and we need to consider causes not only obviously related to sleep, but also causes outside of sleep. It is important also to have in mind that adolescents can experience a number of changes in their sleep, which might be a combination of biological changes, as well as reflect the impact of lifestyle and environmental factors. So it's important to have that in our mind when we, we discuss with an adolescent complaining about sleepiness. And the third message is to realize how important it is to train children, families, and healthcare professionals about the importance of good sleep hygiene and highlighting how important sleep is for future neurodevelopment and for promotion of brain health. I would dare to say that the good sleep is an investment for a child. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it, actually. So thank you so much for a really excellent podcast and for joining us back on the show again. Thank you, Emma. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRC PCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.